You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Um, did you do anything cool for the fourth? Anybody at all? Yeah. Just step out your door and watch the fireworks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fireworks are cool. We went out to Hermosa last night, and uh, there's a local businessman that lives in Hermosa, and his business must be good because he put on a display at his place that was bigger than any municipal display I've seen. It was just, it was incredible. It just never quit. We kept thinking, man, he only... We thought he had a finale, but he did it like three or four times. There'd always be a gap in between. But, uh, yeah, that was fun. Anybody else? What was your 4th of July like? Matthew? I had a really great 4th of July, um, but I was in like a foot tall weed, so like cause we were in the field watching the fireworks, and the, the field wasn't mowing, so we were just getting our feet scratched up by grass. Um, but it was really fun because we got to see the fireworks. That was super fun. Okay. So Matt had a weed experience. <laughs> yeah, take that however you want. <laughs> so, all right. Anybody else? Yeah, Tatiana. So, so this is kind of like officially your second Fourth of July as an American citizen, right? That's, yeah, that's cool uh, because it gives us a fresher perspective. I think it's such a huge holiday, but a very important one uh, for you, and it means something to you. And thank you for praying while watching the fireworks. Okay, anything else? Okay. Oh yes, Jake. Um. So I had this amazing plan to watch the Rushmore fireworks. I was really worried it wouldn't work out, and it did. And we ended up hiking to the top of one of these peaks, and no one else was around. We couldn't even see the faces, but you could see all the fireworks. And then somehow, on the way out, Tyler parked the wrong way in the traffic, but there was a gap, and he was able to turn around. It worked out perfect. Okay. All right. I was really worried it wouldn't, but it's great. Yeah. So if you didn't win the lottery to go up to Mount Rushmore, you had to come be creative and come up with ways to, to do that. So, All right. Okay, did anybody do what I did and that's like eat too much? I, I, I never thought of the 4th of July as being such an eating holiday, but we, we did a lot of hopping from one event to the other yesterday, and there was always food there. You always kind of felt like you had to eat when you showed up. And everybody brings, you know, all these great snacks and, and whatnot. And, and, and then that got me to thinking about something because, uh, is anybody else here an Oreos fan? Okay, alright. Uh, can anybody like me eat an entire package of Oreos pretty much in one setting? <laughs> you can always tell when I do that because, you know, my teeth are all bleeding black from all that. Uh, what's that? It's gotta be double stuff. 
it's got to be double stuffed or all the stuff or whatever. You know, I don't care if it's an Oreo, I'll eat it kind of thing. Um, and we don't have Oreos at our house very often because my wife loves them even more than I do. So then it just becomes a big conflict. Who ate all the Oreos? You know, we just, it was just open five minutes ago kind of thing. Um, so, so there's Oreos and Oreos are great, but then there's these things called Hydrox. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's, that's the Oreo knockoff, right? Who brings Hydrox to a 4th of July picnic? Yeah, I guess I'll eat them, you know. It's, but, and then, now there's a knockoff of the knockoff. I don't even know what they're called. You know, but they're, but they're, I can tell you this, they are not genuine Oreos. Okay, I want, I want genuine Oreos. Now I want you to think about that for a minute, about other things, and which would you prefer? Would you want the genuine thing or would you want the knockoff or the knockoff of the knockoff? Like for example, if, uh, if you're wearing a mask during, during this pandemic, do you want the genuine mask or do you want a knockoff of the knockoff? I don't want a mask. Nobody wants to wear it. But, you know, you're going to probably choose the best one that you can get. Well, what if hospitals ran that way? I've spent a lot of time at uh, at hospitals uh, in the, just in this last week with my dad and urgent cares and dealing with um, uh, nurses and, uh, and physician's assistants and whatnot. What if our medical facilities and our medical personnel were knockoffs? Or knockoffs of the knockoff. Okay, you, you get what I what I'm saying here. Um, we we are a country where the genuine is being replaced by the not so genuine. Okay, so now if you would go to First Peter chapter five, I bet you thought we were done. <laughs> Um, Evan did a great job on dealing with uh, chapter 5, but there's, there's a couple of verses at the end that we want to look at today. And I think that in this passage, uh, Peter, uh, through the Holy Spirit, has something to say about grace and uh, genuine grace. And I think if we follow that line of thought about Oreos, um, I think we all would definitely want to experience genuine grace and not the knockoff of grace or the knockoff of the, the knockoff. But then that comes back to us because we're supposed to be reflectors and distributors of this grace that God has given us. And we have to ask the question, what does this world get from us? What is the world getting from the church and from individual Christians, especially in these times that we are living in, especially now, um, are they getting what's genuine or is it just some kind of a knockoff uh, that's coming along? Uh, let me pray and uh, then let's take a look at this, this passage in First Peter chapter 5 together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, Lord, that you are the genuine God, that there is no God beside you. Um, and, 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 but yet we as human beings, we, we tend to create our own gods. Uh, we tend to even remake you in our image at times. We, we expect you to maybe conform to our expectations and, and whatnot. Um, Lord, we, <laughs> that's not a good thing. And we need to know you genuinely as you are. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ, um, 
was a genuine man and genuine God at the same time. And in that personhood, he came to us and revealed you to us. And not only did he unveil who you are to us, but he also completed your plan to redeem mankind. Um, Lord, we also need to experience genuine salvation, not a salvation of works or, or you know, somehow earning our own way into heaven, but to um, experience the grace that only you can give. So, Lord, as we think about how you are the one and only, the one and only God, the one and only Savior, the only, you give to us the one and only salvation, um, and you also... Declare to us the one and only truth through your written word by the power of your spirit. Um, We come to you, God, and we pray that everything uh, that is um, distributed today and received today uh, would be absolutely, completely uh, genuine, holy, uh, pure, uh, without any pretense uh, whatsoever in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what we know from 1 Peter. Uh, We've spent several weeks now going through this epistle. You've heard from several different voices. Um, What Peter wrote is inspired by the Holy Spirit here. Um, We know that it was sent from Peter to Christians scattered around the Roman Empire during a time of intense suffering and persecution. Okay, we know that much about it. That was kind of the atmosphere of what, when this letter was written and delivered. Uh, it was a time when there was much political unrest, there was a lack of civility, and an intense animosity toward the followers of Jesus. Sound familiar? Kind of like the times we're living in right now. So um, going to First Peter has been very timely for us. It's been very, very relevant to the time that we are living in. Now we also know that when this letter was written and delivered, that it was that the the world as we knew it at that time, the Roman Empire, was under the rule of Nero. Okay, and we know that under the rule of Nero, the empire of Rome was uh, just rife with injustices and corruption. Now, at the time of this writing, Christianity was not only under the shadow of uh, just horrific persecution. Here's something that we often miss about the, this letter. Excuse me, this letter that I think is good for us to understand the, just like I said before, the atmosphere in which it was given. Um, the church, when Peter wrote this and delivered it to these scattered Christians, was also suffering and grieving the execution of the Apostle Paul. Paul's death was just recent before this letter went out. And and just think about that. I mean, who was the Apostle Paul to the first century church? If if someone were to ask you that question, how would you answer it? Who was the Apostle Paul to the first century church? Uh, That is an audience participation question. Who was he to the church? How would you describe Paul? Yes, ma'am. Pardon me? He was God's witness, okay? What else? Okay, yeah, he, he was a church planner. He was going all over the Roman Empire planting churches. I mean, Paul would visit a town. There was a church when he'd leave, you know, kind of thing. All right, what else do we know about him? 
He was a Roman citizen. Okay, he was also a former Pharisee. You know, just an amazing example, I guess we would say, of the genuine grace of God. Here was a guy that was a Roman citizen and and a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and uh, and Christ specifically called him out on the road to Damascus and uh, changed his heart and also called him into the ministry to take the gospel to all the all the Roman Empire. Uh, to the Jews and especially to the Gentiles in there. So he was, uh, I guess we would call Paul a superpowered missionary during that time. Okay? Any other thoughts? You, who was Paul to the first century church? Yes, ma'am. He was a prisoner who, on occasion, I would say, took a licking and kept on ticking because of the Lord. <laughs> okay. He was a prisoner who took a licking and kept on ticking. <laughs> He was the Timex of Christians. I don't know. Just a few of us in that generation remember the Timex commercials, I guess. But uh, but yeah, he was a martyr. He suffered um, even before his his execution. Paul suffered immensely for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he spent a lot of his ministry in prison. Several of the New Testament books were written while he was in prison. And, and he just kept going. Nothing seemed to dismay him. When you read that, I think it's at 2 Corinthians 12, when it talks about how much he suffered, how often he was beaten or stoned or whipped or scourged and shipwrecked and all these things, but yet he just, he just wouldn't quit talking about the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, we, we might say that Paul might have been like the, I don't know, the Billy Graham of the first century. He was just an evangelist that went out, and uh, he was a figurehead. Every, you know, if you said the Apostle Paul, people knew who you were talking about throughout the entire Roman Empire. Now, there was a time when his reputation wasn't that good, and if you mentioned the name of Saul of Tarsus, people kind of went, oh, no, don't want anything to do with this guy. But after a few decades of him walking with Christ, serving the church, serving the gospel of Jesus Christ to the churches and to the Roman Empire, um, when the name Paul was mentioned, people went, oh yeah, Paul. Do you think there might have even been some people that said, I wish I could be like Paul? Yeah, yeah. I sometimes wonder, did Peter ever think that? I wish I was more like Paul instead of me. <laughs> you know, that's just natural. We do that. I mean, don't we? Don't we uh, have person personalities in Christianity today that we we tend to look at in that way? Okay, and you know, especially our pastors and things like that. We'll, you know, we know what it's like to grieve the loss of a pastor, don't we? You know, we're a year into that, and. Um, and, and, and we miss Brian because Brian was quite the personality, you know. He was easy to joke with, easy to pick on, and he'd pick on you right back, those kind of things. Brian was not just a, a pastor to us, but a friend. And, uh, I, I, you know, he was, he was on our level. And I, I think Paul was like that, too. I don't think Paul was the kind of guy that wanted to be put up on a, on a, on a display or a pillar or something above other Christians. Um, he was right there. He wanted to be all things to all men. Okay? That, that meant he wanted to be on their level in any way that, that he could. So I would imagine that when Nero had Paul executed, that that would have been a blow to the, the believers in the Roman Empire. That that would have been hard. And, you know, and Paul, when you look at his letters that he wrote in prison, they were very encouraging letters. 
very rich letters talking about the grace of God and what we get to experience, even, even if we're chained up in a prison. He, he displayed that to us. And now we have this rampant persecution that, that Nero has unleashed upon Christians uh, during that time, and, and we don't have Paul to encourage us. We don't, we, we don't get letters from him anymore to tell us how great the grace of God is. So it's good for us to recall that, that and, and, and that might have been part of what prompted Peter to say, you know, it's, these are tough days we're living in. And people need to be encouraged. Christians, they, they, need to, they need to be reminded of the genuine grace of God. And so he writes this letter that we now know as, as 1 Peter and, and sends it out. Um, we have seen that God's intent in this epistle was to encourage a beleaguered church um, and to encourage them to stand firm in the pursuit of holiness in living a life immeasurably different from any other life lived here on earth. A life that can only be lived in a relationship with him through faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what this letter is calling us back to. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder constantly. Um, even as I was driving in today, I was talking to God, and I, I'm like, God, where have I been? You know, I've been kind of like this strange sheep for the past couple of weeks. Um, have I kind of touched base with you as often as I normally do? And, and, kind of, and I just kind of noticed this lapse in my own spiritual walk. And uh, yeah, I need, to, I need that. I need that, 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 that North Star that God is to remind me where I'm at and who I am and to, and to get realigned, so to speak, so that I can navigate life as we go through it. So this is a great letter to remind us and to help us of those things. Now, just as the opening of an epistle can easily be kind of blown over, you know, just, oh, you know, it's an obligatory thing that all letters have, dear so-and-so, not really much being said there, let's get to the, to the meat of it. Well, sometimes the same is true at the closing of an epistle. And we, we just tend to think that, like I said, that there's some sort of obligatory words or customary words that always come at the end of a letter. But we have to remember that, no, these are words from the Holy Spirit. And every word given by the Holy Spirit is Scripture. And that every word of Scripture is profitable and is useful to help us grow in this good life that Jesus died to give us. So let's look at that closing. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through 14, where it says this, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, there it is. Boom. You know, what's, what's in that? Okay, what's in those two verses that, uh, that God meant for Peter to write at the close of this incredible epistle? And is it still timely and relevant 
For you and I today, as followers of Jesus Christ, I would say, yes, I definitely believe so. So let's break it down. There's about four elements that I saw jumping out of this, this particular passage. And the first one was by or through Sylvanus. Okay, do you know who that guy is? Of the forest. That's what the name means, of the forest. Um, this is the guy that either wrote the letter as Peter dictated it, or more likely delivered the letter uh, to the people. Okay, Sylvanus is Silas. You ever heard of him? He's throughout the New Testament, all over the place. He was one of Paul's partners in ministry. Okay, when Paul and Barnabas went separate directions, it was then Paul and Silas that traveled all around the Roman Empire, planting churches and encouraging the churches that, that had been planted before. Um, this was a guy that walked in, in, in Paul's footsteps. Uh, we might even say that Paul was sort of like his rabbi, that he was discipled by Paul, that the dust of Paul as he traveled the, the road fell upon Silas. And now here he is, after Paul's death, assisting Simon Peter. I don't know whether he thought that was a promotion or a demotion. I, you know, I don't know. But that's what he's doing. He's, he's continuing on in the work that he had been doing throughout everything that we know about him in the um, New Testament. And, and it's interesting that he says this, by Silvanus, uh, a faithful brother as I regard him. So what does that tell us is that that Peter, Simon Peter, when he saw Silas, he saw him as Silas, the faithful brother. And this is why this is important. Because the faithful brother is the glue that God uses to hold the church together. When Paul was gone, it was Silas who kind of had to step into the gap. To carry on what he had learned there. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you have a faithful brother or faithful sister that you can identify? Who is somebody that, like Paul, took a licking and kept on ticking? You know, and in faith and, and continued in that. Because we need those people. Okay? Now, not only should we be able to identify a faithful brother or a faithful sister, the glue that's holding the church together, let me ask this question. Are you a faithful brother or a faithful sister. See, we don't have to be just like Paul. Some of us might be, I don't know. But I think we can be like Silas. I think we can continue serving faithfully no matter what, no matter what's going on in life, no matter what what kind of kicks we get to just keep getting up and, and keep going. So I think that's an important element in this closing, that we're being reminded by Peter of of this man named Silas, who he regarded as a faithful brother. And then you get down to verse uh, 13. And there's this strange little statement. uh, She who is at Babylon. What? (laughs) Why does Babylon? You know, Babylon. That was that was this horrible, horrible country, um, uh, world power, actually, empire that existed in the Old Testament. Uh, The Jews suffered greatly under Babylon. Why is Babylon all of a sudden popping up here? Well, this is what most scholars believe is that Peter was using code words here. 
And when he uses the term she, who is at Babylon, who he later then says who is likewise chosen, he's talking about the church. Because they use the feminine pronoun for the church. And Babylon would have been Rome. If you read the book of Romans, okay, written by the Apostle Paul, um, it was written directly to believers who dwelt in the city of Rome, both Jew and Gentile. And it's an amazing discourse on the righteousness of God and, and how we walk in it, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile. Okay? So just imagine this. If Christians were suffering in the Roman Empire because of things that were going on in, in life at that time and that day, what do you think it was like for the church in Rome? They were in the, the epicenter of everything that was going. I mean, if, if we were up in Cappadocia or, or, or wherever, we were just getting the ripple effect of everything that was going on. If, if you were in Rome, it was like you were standing in Yellowstone when the supervolcano blew. And, and what this serves for us is a reminder that as bad as we think we've got it, there's always somebody else going through something way worse. And I think that's a good reminder for us today. That as, as bad as we might think life is going for us right now, you don't have to look very far or very hard to find someone who's suffering even more. And so Peter's reminding us that you know these people that are suffering intently, intensely um, are bearing greetings to the rest of us as well. Reminding us, oh yeah, you know, there's people we need to help. There's people we need to take care of. No matter how bad I think life is for me right now, the question I should be asking myself is, who can I help? Who needs my help? And how can I, in the power that God gives, be a help to these people? Then the third element um, shows up at the tail end of the same verse where, uh, where this guy shows up again, Mark. Okay? Yeah, Mark, you know, we know we talked about him, you know, and his failure early on in his discipleship, but how he later was useful to ministry to the man he failed. Okay, he, he was one of Paul's disciples later on in life too, but remember again, Paul's not here anymore. So here's John Mark. Where, where's he? He goes back to Peter. Peter, who he might have even possibly been related to. And, and he's helping Peter. He's being useful to ministry with Peter. He's another faithful brother. But I like what Peter says here. He says, um, it's not only is the church who is in, in Rome greeting you, but so does Mark, my son. And that term son used in that time in that vernacular of Christians is um, my disciple. Somebody that I've been pouring my life into to help them to grow. You know, he had, he had Peter, I'm sorry, he had Paul as a disciple maker, John Mark did. He had Timothy pouring into his life. He had Barnabas earlier on pouring into his life. Um, Silas is probably pouring into his life again. And, and now here's Simon Peter doing that as well. And this again is another reminder to us as a church in the time that we live in today is that there's always somebody that we should be discipling. There's always somebody that we should be pouring our life into so that they can be encouraged and that they can grow 
and they can take steps and hopefully even leave us in the dust when it comes to serving the kingdom of God. So that brings us back to another question is, well, who is is my son or my daughter in Christ? Who have I taken under my wing to to help grow and to encourage? That's really, and I think any of us, if we claim to have experienced the genuine grace of God, that that would be something we'd be about. In fact, I'd probably even go so far to say, if I'm not being about that, then I am less than genuine. I'm a hydrox Christian, or a knockoff of that, even. So it's imperative because that's that's what we were told to do by Jesus. Go out into this world, and as you go, make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And, and we're to continue that until Jesus comes. I think we have a rich opportunity right here at Common Ground to be disciplers. I think God has blessed us with the gift of young men and women attending the School of Mines, saying, how can we grow in our faith? I mean, we should stand amazed at the population of School of Mines students that that sit in these chairs, you know, and fill this place up. It's astounding. And we know that there's so many more that they want to disciple. So I'll just, I'll just call out Joey, okay? Because Joey asked that fantastic question of Evan last week. And I've had conversations with Joey. And every time, uh, every time Joey just says something or writes something, I'm always going, wow, this guy really wants to grow in his faith. There's no doubt about that. And not only does he want to grow in his faith, this guy really wants to help others grow in faith as well. And that prompted his question to Evan, how would you disciple people to do that? So, common ground, we, you know, are we going to be found faithful with this gift that God has given to us? And not just the college students, but one another. There's so much that we can pour into one another. And you might think, well, what do I have to offer? Well, what does Simon Peter have to offer? Right? I mean, we know his record in the Gospels. The guy was a nut. But he was God's nut. And he grew. And he became an incredible man of God who, who God used to write this epistle in 2 Peter as well. And more than likely, he was the, it, was, it was his gospel narrated to Mark that we call the Gospel of Mark. He was a man immensely used by God, even though his past record would have indicated that you know, I wouldn't hire him. Based on his resume, I think we can find somebody better. But who better to demonstrate the genuine grace of God than someone who genuinely needed that grace? And so he was probably the perfect discipler. Angels can't disciple us, because angels don't know what it's like to be broken. They don't know what it's like to be full of sin and to let God down and, and to fail him on a daily basis. But we do. That's what makes us the perfect disciples, is because we know that experience. And we also know that it's only Jesus Christ that overcomes those things. And if he's done that in our lives, then we can, he can use that to, talk, to, to pour into other people's lives. Mark, my son, 
greets you as well. And then there's this, this statement about greet one another with the kiss of love. Boy, we aren't having any of that in the days of COVID. <laughs> uh-uh. But in, 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 yeah, I had to go back to, uh, thanks to my daughter, I made a trip to Albania. Okay, because she went first, she blazed the trail, and uh, and then I went to Albania and I met these two young guys, they're twin brothers, who were pastoring a, a very poor church in a very poor village, and they just wanted some help. And uh, what do you suppose the first thing they did when we when when we met each other in the airport, being Albania? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, I hadn't shaved for a couple of days. They haven't shaved for a while. It was like Velcro. Oh, man, now our cheeks are stuck to each other. You know. Okay? And i got to tell you, that weirded me out a little bit because we don't do that that much over here in America, and especially in Midwest America. Somebody moves in from my cheek, and it's a guy. I'm probably going to put my hand in his face, right? But, but that was the customary greeting, and I had to get used to that, that no matter who I met, I was going to get kissed. You know, on the cheek, you know, and I'd have to do a moi, moi thing to them as well, you know. But that was, that was customary in Peter's day, in Paul's day, in the early church's day throughout the Roman Empire. So Peter says, take something that's ordinary and make it extraordinary. Even your greeting. I mean, we tease each other a little bit about our awkward social interaction time down here, and it's even more awkward now as we kind of say hello from a distance and, and that kind of thing. But we have the opportunity to greet people every day. And we have to ask ourselves this question, is it a greeting of love? Is it a holy greeting? Uh, the kiss gets mentioned in several other epistles. I think uh, Paul used the term greet each other with a holy kiss at least a couple of times. You know, And whatever our custom is for greeting one another, whether it's a handshake, whether it's a fist bump, or just a wave, or you know, the, the hazmat hug <laughs> that we're doing now, how can we make that holy? How can we make that um, a, a, a thing that if that's the only interaction this person has with me today, they know this. That I love them. That I love them. Because you know what? I've been watching the protests. I don't think they're going to solve anything. I don't think they are. I'm not saying that it's wrong to protest. I'm just saying we've got the wrong expectation if we think that they're going to change the world. Do we need a, a shift in how justice is exercised in our country? Yeah, we do. But I don't think protests are going to change that. They might give it, get us talking about it at least. You know. But they're not going to be the change agent. I think that if anything is going to change this world that we live in, very much like the Roman Empire, this very troubled, broken up place, it's going to be our ability to genuinely love others. Now, Jesus told a bunch of zealots who really liked protesting, <laughs> anything they could do to you know, throw, overthrow the Roman Empire, he told them, he says, no, this is how people are going to know you're my followers. It's going to be by your love, and specifically your love for one another. He says, that's going to be your trademark. 
And, and I think this again serves as a great reminder to us from First Peter 2, the times that we're living in, that is that we have got to step up our game and be genuine in love towards one another. It's kind of interesting. We're actually closing out a series here, but this serves as kind of an introduction to the next series, which is called Genuine. And it's going to be a look at Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, where the first phrase of of that little um, machine gun staccato of, of commands given to us is, let love be genuine. Let love be without pretense. Let love be without hypocrisy. No play acting to it. I need that. As a Christian, I need that reminder that that's really job one for me, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said was the greatest commandment of all times was to, to love God with everything you've got and then to love your neighbor as yourself? And when, and when he uses the term neighbor, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, <laughs> I mean, what he actually does is he doesn't disqualify anybody. That word neighbor is blanket term for even people you really don't want to love. And that's what we're supposed to do as genuinely as we can. And so we, we get to spend several weeks just looking at what that's like to love genuinely. And, and I think it comes back to this because Paul made that statement um, in the first verse, about verse 12, uh, that he was writing for this purpose to exhort to encourage and to declare, to teach to us that this is the true grace of God. Walk in it. Stand firm in it. And then he says in his final words to the readers of this letter, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, To all you Christians that are reading this, Paul says, Peace, And that leads me to, well, what is this peace to you all? And, and I think what, what the Greek word is describing there when it says peace is, is a settled soul living in an unsettled place and time. That the, the, the ultimate end of this letter was that the reader could be a settled soul living in an unsettled place in an unsettled time. Uh, it's been nice since I moved. We don't have the local TV stations up there unless I do all the work of putting an antenna up or something like that, which I really don't want to do. Because if I do, then I'm going to be watching the, the nightly propaganda. Oh, I'm sorry, they call it the news. Um, <laughs> but this is one thing I know, you know from taking a look at the news from time to time. These are unsettled times. And this is an unsettled place. And what the world needs right now are settled souls. And the only thing that I know that's going to settle my soul is the genuine, not the hydrox, not the knockoff of the knockoff, but the genuine grace of God. So we know that peace by standing firm, as Peter said, in that grace. And what does that look like? Well, let me just kind of recap the last ten weeks of First Peter. It looks like rejecting the idea of getting back to normal. And saying instead, let's 
Let's get back to unnormal. Because that's what holiness is. It's other than. It's nothing like what is normal. Let's pursue that. And one of the ways that we can do that is, is by the attitude that we choose, no matter what our circumstances might be. And, and how do we choose that attitude? Well, we look to Jesus. What would Jesus' attitude be in the circumstances that we live in today? And am I willing to choose that attitude? If I am, then I'm walking in genuine grace. Justin reminded us that that it's placing your hope in the right place so that it will produce right actions. Okay, Where we put our hope is going to determine how we behave. And, and Justin reminded us, as First Peter reminded us, that, that Jesus is the right place to put our hope. That's genuine grace when we do that. Uh, Job, he, he preached to us a little bit, and he talked to us about that. It's an understanding that, that salvation is a gift given to us through Jesus so that we can then walk in good works. It's not something that we earn or, or come up with ourselves, manufacture ourselves. It's something that's given to us by Jesus so that we can then walk in a way that makes a difference in the world that we live in. That's genuine grace. Doug then talked about picking the right rocks. He said you can pick up a rock to stone somebody, or you can pick up a rock that would heal. You know, and we throw our words like rocks now. Okay? So what kind of rocks are we picking up? Are we casting life rather than death? Well, how do I cast life? Well, I cast life, as Peter described him, the lit through the living stone, Jesus Christ. So not only am I supposed to choose the attitude that Jesus would choose in the circumstances that we live in, I should be choosing my words towards others in the same way that Jesus would speak. And then we saw that genuine grace is responding respectfully and honorably to all authority, even when it's unjust. To remember that, that you know a political system isn't going to make anything right. The people that we vote for are not going to fix the problems in this world. And we're off balance if we think they are. Because ultimately, the government needs to rest on Jesus' shoulders. Are we looking to Him as the one who places all authority over us to make things right? Then Mark Cole, he talked to us about how genuine grace is guarding our relationships that God has given to us. Um, and that these, remembering that these, these relationships are the heart of the gospel. That's how Jesus proclaimed the gospel to the world during his time. It was by the relationships that he produced and he built. We were reminded that genuine grace is seeking and pursuing peace. Especially during unsettled times. It's going back to Peter's closing of that letter. And uh, he told us earlier that, that, that we should be peacemakers because peacemakers are the children of Jesus. You know, that's what Jesus did. He came to settle what had been unsettled. That's genuine grace, and we're supposed to stand firmly in that. Ted reminded us that, that genuine grace is living a changed life and what's a changed life? Well, it's one that looks like it belongs to Jesus. Well, how do you know that, that someone belongs to Jesus? It's, it's that, well, they're just trying to love people the way Jesus loves them. Show me who I can help. 
And one of my favorite answers uh, to a question that Jesus gave, and, and I like that Jesus answered questions with questions. You know, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. <laughs> and, and Jesus' response was this question. What would you have me do for you? Just think about that. The God of the universe, the creator of everything that we know, the, the, the Holy One beyond everything that we can imagine, the one of all power and majesty, saying to a blind beggar, what can I do to help you? What can I do to help you? That's genuine grace. That's what it looks like to walk in it. And then Justin, preaching again, reminded us that genuine grace is when we suffer for the right reasons. Not suffering because we did something wrong and we deserve to suffer, but suffering when we don't deserve to suffer. Suffering only because we chose to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. That's genuine grace. It's a gracious thing, Peter said, when that happens. And then last week, Evan talked about serving. That's what genuine grace looks like. When we have experienced that, then we're, we're, we're going to serve in however manner we can. We're, we're going to shepherd people. We're going to be an example uh, to people. We're going to be humble in our service. We're going to stand firm and resist the devil as we do that. You know, and, and what that is, is he's, he's painting a portrait of Jesus to us, the good shepherd, um, who did all those things perfectly. And then that's what this, this whole series is really about, was living that good life, which, you know, you and I cannot manufacture and, and we can't even measure it because a good life is really the life of Jesus Christ. That that's what genuine grace is. And when we stand in it, we're, we're actually living the life of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that comes from a daily dependence upon him. To take absolute control of every aspect of our lives. You know, you do not get a quantity, a certain quantity of the Holy Spirit when you come to know Him and then get more of Him as you grow up as a Christian. You get them all at once. So I don't remember who, who I heard this from, some old time preacher, you know. He says, it's not how much of the Holy Spirit you, you have that matters, it's how much of you the Holy Spirit has. And, and what a question and to ask, am I genuine? Because it's answered in how much of me does the Holy Spirit have? Because if he's only got this bit of me and the rest of this is mine, then I'm just a hydrox knockoff of a knockoff Christian. That's the good life. Not the best life that we can live, but the life that Jesus died to give us. A life that's possible through faith in Jesus Christ. A life that's attainable by the power of His Holy Spirit. A life that was chosen for us before time began through God the Father. So in short, this entire letter was given to us to remind us what genuine Christian faith should look like in a world that desperately needs to see it. Do you have what it takes to be genuine? 
You do if you've trusted Jesus Christ. If you've received and believed in Him as your Lord and your Savior. And the only way to do that is by walking in repentance and in faithfulness to God. Which again is possible through the Holy Spirit. You can be genuine. In a time where we're surrounded by hydrox and knockoffs. I hope the one thing that, that, that we can say about common ground that we hold in common is that desire to be genuine in our faith. Let's pray. Lord, there's nothing unadulterated in me or pure or perfect, or right, or even genuine, unless it's first been given to me by Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's one thing we know about your word in the Gospels, throughout the epistles of the New Testament, is that you've given us everything we need through Christ through the presence of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, to be able to to live a genuine, grace-filled, loving faith to a world that needs to experience it. Lord, they're looking for it. They're hungry for it. They want to consume it. It's just that maybe they've been given the knockoff too much that they don't have the taste for it. So, Lord, we pray that you will make people hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And that it would begin in us. And, Lord, we pray that we would thirst for it and hunger for it so much that we'd want to go out and share it with others. So, Lord, as you have been genuine in your grace to us, May we be genuine in our receiving of it and in our sharing of it in this world that we live in. And Lord, now I pray for Common Ground Church and all those who are listening, tuned in today through the, the live stream. Peace be upon you. May you be a settled soul in a very unsettled place and time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.